Salut. Salut. Hello and welcome to Las Doctoras podcast, bringing you conversations about race, gender, sexuality, reproductive justice, and so much more. I am Dr. Renee Limas, gender pronouns she, her. I am Dr. Christina Rose, gender pronouns she, her, hers. In this podcast, we are going to share space with women and other people of color to discuss ways to dismantle all systems of oppression, including white supremacist, capitalistic, cis-heteronormative patriarchy. We imagine ourselves sitting at the table in our abuelita's house, sharing a pot of frijoles de la olla and chasing that with a shot of tequila, all while thinking of revolutionary ideas. That's the sentiment we hope to bring you, and we invite you to join us on this journey. Bienvenidos. Hello. Welcome to our second episode of Las Doctoras podcast. Uh, we are so excited to be bringing you our second episode um, and really happy that those who listened to our first episode really sort of embraced the conversation and what we were doing. It's just me today, Dr. Renee. You know, uh, it's the end of the semester and I'm still actually in the middle of grading and, and trying to get my grades in. And so it's always a little bit of a hectic time for professors and obviously it being the holidays as well. And so uh, last week, actually, I was really sick along with my kids and then... Christina got sick as well, and then she's actually left on a well-deserved vacation. So it's just going to be me today introducing um, our interview that we are doing for, or that we conducted for this second episode. So welcome. We interviewed Cindy Lukin, and for those of you who don't know, you can follow her. I think she's now at Cindy Lukin um, on Instagram. She was formerly... Uh, at Cultura con Wellness. She just recently changed her, her Instagram name, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the interview. She is actually the guest lecturer on the class that we have online, Reclaiming Our Cycles. In that class, the lecture that she does is actually the sort of practical part. So if you still haven't, you know, gotten access to our course or haven't taken our course, it's still available. It's still available at 30% off. We're going to revisit that at the beginning of the year. So it will that will be available through the end of the year. And if you haven't even heard about that, right, so we have this online learning site on teachable.com and we have created a course called Reclaiming Our Cycles. And uh, Christine and I get into the historical and cultural context of the ways in which particularly people of Latinx heritage, the way our ancestors uh, menstruated, you know, many years ago, how that was impacted by colonization. And then, like I said, Cindy Lukin does the practical part. So she talks about how to track your cycles, how to look for different symptoms of ovulation in order to really be, be conscious of our bodies, to connect to our bodies, understanding how our cycles impact our reproductive health and our general health. So um, Cindy Lukin is an, is a really amazing resource. And um, so it obviously made sense for us to have her on this podcast. When we were interviewing her, you know, even in our last interview, it's so hard to 
you know, keep the interview within a certain time frame because, you know, we're with people that we very much admire and we can talk to forever. And so when I was, you know, I'm the one who sort of watches the time on our interviews and uh, I saw it going past, a, you know, a little too long and I thought, should I cut us off or should I just leave it going and, and break it into into two parts and and I just let us run and and I think that's that's actually best that we're going to be breaking it up into two episodes so you'll be listening to our interview with Cindy Lukin over this episode as well as the next so I do want to give a little context to the interview she will do her own introduction but she also gets into her personal story of what brought her to this work, what brought her to the work of fertility awareness. And for those of you who don't know what fertility awareness is, she will be explaining that. She does a really good job of giving a definition of that. But overall, it's just about body literacy. How do we understand our menstruating bodies for those of us who menstruate? And she dives into her personal story with with her journey with, with her own fertile body and with her own menstruating body. And it's such an impactful story and it made me really think, and Christine and I have been thinking for a while, how important it is to have these, have our stories be told and to give context to the larger work that we do based in our personal stories. And so we were, we were really honored to have Cindy share her story with us and Christine and I both hope to eventually share our own stories of what brought us to the work of reproductive justice as well. Um, So look for that in future episodes. I also want to say that, you know, the work that we're doing in the course that we have available online and in these interviews, particularly in these series, right, in this flow series that we're calling it, it really speaks to the larger issue of reproductive justice. And I think that that's such an important topic. And again, if you take our course, we do a brief little talk about reproductive justice, because I think often when we think about reproductive justice, we think primarily of reproductive rights. So we focus on access to abortion, or or not even access, but really about uh, laws around abortion, and, and birth control pill. And so for me, you know, it's really relying on the work of reproductive justice. And so I want to read a little bit from uh, the Sister Song, the Sister Song website. So Sister Song is a women of color reproductive justice collective. They are mostly black women, if not all black women. They are actually the group of women who coined the term reproductive justice. And it's really important to give them um, that historical recognition. So if you go to their site, sistersong.net, um, and you go to the about page, they, they have sort of a little, you know, definition. So it says, what is reproductive justice? Sister Song defines reproductive justice as the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. And, you know, every time I read that, I think, wow, that's such a simple it's, a, it's such a simple thing, right, to say we want to be able to decide to make decisions about our own bodies, have children if we want to, to not have children if we don't want to, and to be able to raise our children safely, right? Those suits like seem like such simple human rights, and yet we know that those 
human rights are being infringed upon in so many different ways, um, which is why there's the need for reproductive justice. So um, on that site, again, they go through a little bit of history of reproductive justice, particularly Sister Song as an organization, but they get into, again, the nuances of that. And I think for me, when I read this and I, I try to articulate even my own standing in social justice, it always comes back to a lot of this. So I'm not going to give you the full, every single point that they make, but just to give a few. So um, they say reproductive justice is about access, not choice. Mainstream movements have focused on keeping abortion legal as an individual choice. That is necessary, but not enough. Even when abortion is legal, many women of color cannot afford it or cannot travel hundreds of miles to the nearest clinic. There is no choice when there is no access. And that is huge, again, because we see so often the mainstream rhetoric around reproductive rights rights is, you know, pro-choice and having, a you know, being able to have the choice to have an abortion. Um, but even when that is so, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's financially or geographically accessible to everyone, right? And if it's, if it's not accessible, then it, then it really is not a choice, right? Um, so I think that that's a really important part of the conversation. They go on to say that reproductive justice is not just about abortion. Abortion access is critical, and women of color and other marginalized women also often have difficulty accessing contraception, comprehensive sex education, STI prevention and care, alternative birth options, adequate prenatal and pregnancy care, domestic violence assistance, adequate wages to support our families, safe homes, and so much more, right? So again, it's not just about abortion, and it's also not just about the pill, but it's about having the multitude of options available to us, even just having the information be accessible to us. And so this is uh, what our conversation about is in this interview is, and really this is what our conversation is throughout this flow series. Christina and I, and I would say Cindy, we all recognize how privileged we are to have access to the information that we do. In Cindy's story, you'll hear that she came to this information through very kind of tragic ways, um, but nonetheless, it's been her education that has allowed her to explore even more of that information. And uh, Christina and I both feel the same way, that it's our education to be able to know how to find this information, know where to find it, know where to look. And thus, we're able to make different kinds of decisions, different kinds of choices, because we have access to that information. Um, and so we recognize that those who don't have access to that information don't have access to the same kinds of choices that we are, that we do. So Christine and I both talked about um, our birth stories or, or a little bit of our birth stories um, in our first episode. And again, recognizing that how did we even know that home birth was an option, you know, because we had the audacity <laughs> to go and search for that information. It wasn't something that was given to us. Um, but again, just having that audacity comes from the fact that uh, we are in education, that we have access to a certain type of information. It's not just easily accessible. Um, and that is what true injustice is in terms of uh, reproductive health, that we don't have basic access to information about our own bodies. And this is what we're trying to do in this course. And I think this is really the crux of, of the work that Cindy does. 
she particularly, um, because she has a background in uh, translation and, and doing uh, translating work, she really looks at how, how much of this information is accessible in other languages, particularly um, in Spanish languages, right? And again, well, what we're talking about here is just basic knowledge about our bodies, basic knowledge about our menstruating bodies. I think we talked a little bit about sex ed in our first episode, um, and I think we're going to be talking about it a little bit in this episode or in the next, but um, just really recognizing the the lack of sex ed that we get, the lack of body literacy that we understand. In this first part of the interview, you'll hear um, Cindy, Christine, and I just talk a lot about this deep responsibility because of the privileges that we've had to get gain access to information about our own bodies, be it, you know, that we had to search for it, right? But we still had access to it in a way that many other people don't. Um, and because of that, how much of a responsibility we feel to, to share it with others. And particularly because we are in um, at least Christina and I, you know, being that we're professors, being that we interact with young people in, in a classroom setting, um, and that the topic of reproductive justice comes in, you know, how important it is for us to share, particularly from our experiences, share everything, all the knowledge that we have gained throughout our lives. And I think this is also why Christina and I feel so motivated to bring this out of the university because again within the university it's only it still only makes it accessible to those who can afford to go to college right and and how can we make it um, accessible and affordable to those who are not in that space you know and who who need this information and so you know that's that's really the motivating uh, that's the motivation behind a lot of what we do and yet at the same time we recognize that the other part of this work, the other part of reproductive justice work, um, and Sister Song also says, is to analyze power systems, right? And so you'll hear Christina and I talk a lot about cis-heteropatriarchy and white supremacy, and these are power systems that prevent people from having access to this information in the first place. So while on one hand, we as educators want to be able to share the information that we've gained on our journeys with as many people as possible, we also feel the need to make structural changes, right? That our society needs to make structural changes. So it's not just about us as educators, you know, wanting to share what we've learned, but also really calling upon these larger power systems, really to dismantle these power systems in general. Um, but ultimately to be able, we do that in order to be able to make this information um, more accessible to everybody, right? That is that is at the heart of what Sister Song says. Um, I want to go back to something that they particularly mention on their website. They say, to achieve reproductive justice, we must center the most marginalized. Our society will not be free until the most vulnerable people are able to access their resources and full human rights to live self-determined lives without fear, discrimination, or retaliation. And again, that is where uh, the work lies, right? We need to recognize who are the most vulnerable in our society. And it's people of color, it's trans people of color, it's disabled people of color, 
people at all of those intersections, right, of, of these marginalized identities, these marginalized communities, and we need to address their needs. We need to center what their needs are, because by default, we will all benefit from that, right? It can't work from the top down. It has to work by centering those who are most vulnerable, who are most marginalized. When we think about the uh, Black maternal mortality rate, right? That black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth or uh, shortly after. Um, it's an astounding statistic. And yet it's based in, again, white supremacy, cis heteropatriarchy that creates that vulnerability, particularly for, for black menstruating bodies. Reproductive justice is about addressing that, right? Not just about addressing the pill or not just about addressing abortion, but really addressing the power systems at large that create a lack of access to a multitude of choices. This is the conversation that we're having and we're having the, you know, the, the interview that we're having is in conjunction with this larger conversation around reproductive justice. And in this first interview, first part of the interview, it's really just about centering her story, centering Cindy's story and, and recognizing the power of that, of the lived experience and recognizing how this information about our bodies is inaccessible, particularly, you know, because she particularly is looking at how it's inaccessible to Latinas, right? It's, it's, it's not accessible in, in language. Um, it's not just literally physically <laughs> accessible. Um, and so we we speak to that, um, and then in the second part of the interview, in our next episode, we get into the much more complex and nuances of this, but it's just a really, really important conversation to be having, and I'm excited that we have been able to interview Cindy, because I think she has just so much to say. I know that in my own journey with my body and with my menstruating body, I've learned so much. And again, part of that is because I'm an educator and I've had access to so much research and information. And yet there's still only, you know, so much that I've learned along the way, which is still very frustrating, right? So you can imagine for all the the access that I had, all the the research that I've been able to gain access to, it's still it's still not enough, all right? I'm still learning. Um, and Cindy's been able to dive a little bit more deeply into that. And so it's just so great to just listen to her. To She's a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And it's also very exciting that she is a Latina voice. Because the other part of this is, this is not to say that other people aren't doing work around um, having this information accessible. But it's usually still very white-centered, very cis-centered, very able-bodied centered. Um, and it's it's just it's such a necessary thing to have a Latina voice in there to recognize that we need to make this accessible, particularly to Latinas, again, because they are um, a, a very vulnerable uh, community when it comes to reproductive health, right, and reproductive justice. So uh, again, it's it's very exciting to hear, to hear what she has to say. And, and I just, you know, in interviewing her, I was just sitting there and listening to her story and listening to everything that that she has to say. Um, and, and I just, I mean, I could sit there and listen to her and watch her talk forever. I think it's, it's so great. Um, and I do want to say that she was actually also 
uh, shortly after our interview, she was interviewed for a documentary. So there's a documentary being made based on the book Sweetening the Pill by Holly Griggs Ball. And the book really just sort of complicates the idea of the birth control pill. Um, and you'll hear that in our in the second half of our interview, um, that conversation. Um, but this documentary is being made by Ricky Lake and um, her partner, Abby Epstein. So uh, if anyone's familiar with the documentary, The Business of Being Born, they made that documentary. And so now they're making this other documentary. And Cindy Lukin was interviewed for that. Um, she's going to be in the documentary. And I was just really excited about that because it's just, it, it's so important to have a Latina voice in there, to have a woman of color be able to speak to to the nuances of reproductive health in conjunction with race, ethnicity, and these other marginalized identities. So it's just really exciting. And I said, I, you know, I, I'm just really honored that she is our friend, <laughs> um, is, is on our course and is on our podcast. And I think she's going to be a really amazing voice and a really amazing, uh, just person in this field and, and doing great work. And, and I'm really excited for, you know, what, what she has in store. Um, and, and again, just honored to have her on our podcast. So I hope that you enjoy the first part of this interview and, uh, we will see you in the second episode or the next episode with the second half of the interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to the Las Doctoras podcast. This is our second episode in our flow series. And today we have the pleasure of talking about liberated fertility with Cindy Lukin, who was our guest lecturer on our first course that is uh, still available. And um, please, um, please join us in that conversation. We are really just very excited to be interviewing you today, Cindy, and I would love to begin by just having you introduce yourself with your gender pronouns, please, mm -hmm. and also just tell us a little bit about your story and um, how it brought you into the work that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to just be here with both Yay. of you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so my gender pronouns are she, her, ella. And a little bit about my background. So um, I come from a background of uh, language interpreting. So I've been doing that for about a little over a decade um, in the public education sector. So, you know, like a, a school districts or school sites, um, I do document translating um, meetings like IEPs. I do mm. a lot of the interpreting board meetings, stuff like that. So I've had tons of experience doing that. Um, my undergrad was in Spanish language and literature. And then I also did um, training in healthcare interpreting. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a little bit. And um, so, yeah, that's my background in education. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm, I'm doing um, my graduate studies at Cal State LA, and that's in Latin American studies. And then my research is based on reproductive health. So um, now my family background, I, my parents are from Guatemala and El Salvador. My dad is from El Salvador. My mom's from Guatemala. I was born here. Mm -hmm. I'm the first one in my family born here, like first grandchild, both sides born here. Mm -hmm. um, my parents were teenagers when they had me, you know, like typical Latinx families. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the oldest. I'm 33 now. 
Mm-hmm. I'm married. I've been married for four years. Um, I don't have any children. And yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Mm. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So good to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to dive into a conversation? Yeah, I think maybe um, if you want to tell us about what brought you to this work. Yeah. What was the inspiration? <clears throat> What's your story? I know that you've shared it. Um, on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we can, at some point, I know that you just kind of had a transition to on Instagram. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. maybe talk about that and then talk about like what brought you to this work. Yeah. So um, for anybody that's been following me for a number of years or maybe coming into my work that's new. Um, so <laughs> I, I did go through a transition. So my previous, I, I'll say previously known as <laughs> <laughs> formerly uh, Cultura con Wellness, I've now transitioned to just my name, Cindy Luquin, and that was an evolution mm-hmm. of me owning my thoughts, my ideas, my, you know, who I am, basically. Um, I felt like I'm at a point in my life where I don't need to hide behind a, a like, what is it called? Like a, like a false name or a pseudo uh-huh, name a pseudonym. to have a business mm-hmm. so um yeah just I am who I am and I'm owning I'm owning that yeah and um so my work how I got into this work with reproductive health and um is basically from my story so mm. I had been on hormonal birth control for six years so I started taking it I think I was 24 that was around the time I was sexually active and then I thought okay if I'm gonna be responsible right because that's Mm -hmm. what we're told Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh do something about it so I you know I was in college undergrad I went to the campus services I got the pill or I think I went to a clinic like a Planned Mm -hmm. Parenthood something like that that's such a so real yeah (laughs) you know they give you the brown paper bag (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh Mm -hmm. you're ashamed when you go to your car but you know at the same time it's like I'm an adult now this is what adults do Uh, I had been on the pill for six years and then I got married Um, obviously I was in a relationship and that person I dated is now my husband Mm -hmm. Um, and so about let me think four years ago, I remember I was starting to feel pain. Well, actually, two years leading up to to that, I was feeling pain on my right hip. Mm. And I always associated it with being, um, with doing exercise because I was very Mm -hmm. involved in like sports Mm. and just really athletic. I always thought, oh, maybe I just pulled something. I ran too hard, whatever. So I would give myself some time to recover. And, um, then it just became continuous and I didn't have health insurance at the time. So I just thought, oh, just, just rest. Just like, don't do much. Then, you know, once I got married, I, I found my career and, and I finished um, undergrad. I graduated and I, um, I finally had health insurance. So, you know, progressively it just kept getting worse. And I realized it was bad when I would miss, uh, large amounts of time of work Mm. there were points where I was like laying on the couch for maybe like two weeks straight and even my husband was like this isn't normal and I always thought like no it's fine you know I'll just like rest then finally I remember I was one day at work like I I couldn't even stand anymore I couldn't even like sit down and do my work so I took myself to urgent care really close to work and and um 
you know, I told them I, before that I had been going to my primary care and they will always just give me pills like take this pain mm. medication. It'll go away. It's mm-hmm. probably um, a muscle strain, you know, whatever. So I was like, okay. Mm. Um, but obviously it didn't. So when I went to urgent care, I thankfully there was a, a doctor there and she was like, okay, we're going to order some x-rays and we're going to see what's going on. They did the x-rays and were like, huh, we see this weird shadowing. That doesn't look normal for your wow. right hip. Um, now we're going to do um, an ultrasound. I want to do that. So I went and I did that. And they did a transvaginal. For anybody that doesn't know, it was uh, it's those things that you see when, when they do the, what is it called? The text yeah. that, that, that check you. It looks like a dildo <laughs> with I, the plastic I, thing on top, on top of it. And I've had that before. They insert it in you. The little thing, that little... No, no, it's like, I mean, like she says, it's a dildo. And it's it's a good size. It, yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. And it goes, yeah, they, they... I don't think it inserts all the way, but it goes up in there. Yeah, it goes in your vagina. That's so awful. So, yeah. It's awful. So, um... That's when they checked, and once I got the results back, then obviously the doctor read, and they're like, okay, well, we found out that you have a large cyst on your right ovary. Wow. The cyst is about a, the size of a grapefruit, <gasps> and then you have a small cyst on the left ovary. And I remember thinking, like, what? <laughs> you know, like, what? where the hell did this grow? Right, yeah. You know, and how does even something mm. that size fit inside your body? Right, right. Um, like, what does it look like? All this stuff, so... I immediately thought, well, is there any way that I've been taking the pill for for six mm, years? Is mm. there any way that that could have contributed to this mass growing? And the doctors told me, well, you know, it's possible. <laughs> and I was like, why the hell have I been taking this right, then if right. that's a possibility? Nobody explained to me. Nobody told me anything. I thought I was being responsible. You know, all these mm-hmm, thoughts started mm-hmm. going through my head. And, you know, being a... I, being of Latinx, Latina, immediately I thought, like, am I going to be able to, like, not have kids? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Even though I wasn't really thinking about yeah, but you're, you're kids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's always kind of implanted in our head. Like, what if you can't have a family? What yeah. does that mean about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your womanhood and all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you had any dreams about that at some point in your life, you know, any kind of vision right. of having, like, yeah. a, a child or a family or being pregnant or all, you know, all these little things that... Yeah, you're just they all come to the forefront I imagine yeah. that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um so after that it was pretty much like you have to have it surgically removed. Wow. Um and so yeah, I went through with the with the surgery. I had a what's called a bilateral oophorectomy. So what they do is they base the procedures basically they take like two rods, like mm-hmm. arms looking. Um they expand your stomach and they insert these rods into both sides. And what these do, they have like little clamps at the end of them. And they they just like snip away at the cyst. Um, so what ended up happening with my right ovary is they had to remove it because the cyst was so large that it had like encased the ovary. And for anybody that's that doesn't know, our ovaries are only like the size of almonds, really. Yeah. They're, they're pretty small, so you can imagine, like, by comparison. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I only have my left ovary. Um, they did say that when they went in, they cleaned up the small cyst that was on the left ovary. And then they had, there was some, like, residual um, 
I don't know, like mass or, or tissues on mm-hmm. my uterus. So they cleaned up my uterus too, which I had no idea. So yeah, um, I have two scars now on, when on they, my When they when they took out your when they removed your ovary, this was in the middle of surgery. Like, did you know prior to that surgery that they were going to that that was a possibility that they would remove it? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they did. They they told me, and I was like, all right. Like you were just do what you got to do. Yeah, because I was in pain at that point, yeah. and mm-hmm. and I would feel like faint, and so my husband and I had a whole talk about that and yeah. I remember um then family starts talking you know oh. like oh, no, you know like yeah. all that stuff right the the in-laws my parents the, really the, the, the possibility all... of like mm-hmm. will I be a grandparent from you you know that <laughs> what does that and you're mean? like I'm just trying to get healthy <laughs> yeah I'm so, in pain I'm in pain yeah, this yeah. Is the so issue, we, right? we um yeah, it was, it was, now that looking back, it was a really, like, interesting time in our lives, and I think I in imagine. our marriage, mm. too, because we had only been married for, like, a year Wow. when all of that happened. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, you know, they say, like, the true tests of, like, is somebody going oh, yeah. by your side? Like, we went through the shit. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, um, yeah. So, yeah, um, anyway, so all of that went on, and, um, then that's when I realized that something needed to change. And yeah. I went with a follow-up. And in the follow-up, they said, okay, well, you know, everything looks fine. You're recovering pretty well. Um, if you want to get back on birth control, you can do that. <laughs> you know? And I was like, wait, what? Why, why would I do that? Like, yeah. isn't this what brought me here in the first place? <laughs> you know? They're like, no, no, actually, the pill will prevent any further cysts from growing on the existing ovary. And I was like, that doesn't How does that make, make sense? sense to me, but okay. So I just, I remember walking out of there like, I'm going to have to find out mm. what to do for myself because yeah. they're not giving me something, yeah. another option. So I went on this like year long journey of like, mm. I need to find something that works. Yeah. I don't even know how I stumbled onto what I found, but then that's when I came across the book, Taking Charge of mm-hmm. Your Fertility, mm-hmm. which is like the Bible of <laughs> fertility yeah. awareness and, it's and like, body literacy. It opens up your, you're like, ah, oh, oh my God, where has this been all my life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when was this when I was 11? Yeah. yeah. So I, um, so I just like, dove into that book Mm. and i was like oh shit our bodies like i'm not fertile all the time Mm. men are fertile all the time like (laughs) men can just plant their seeds everywhere and Mm -hmm. you know possibly impregnate whoever yeah um and so it just opened up my eyes to to what managing my fertility would be like and my health and so that was pretty much the now I call like a blessing in disguise mm. because had that not happened, yes, I lost my ovary, but had that not happened, I don't think that I would have ever connected with what my body wow. does or what I what that means for me so as a as a person. Um, and even in our relationship, my, yeah. mine and my husband, like I don't think we would be having the conversations that we're having now. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. You know, so that's a long-winded uh, version of, <laughs> of how I came into this work. But that's why now yeah. my mission is to, uh, I just came up with my mission. It's been a long evolution, <laughs> but um, it's to empower, liberate, and um, educate people on taking control of their reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such important work. I think um, 
so Christine and I, we just had a Facebook Live event for the people in our course. And, um, and that came up, this idea of our own journeys coming to information. Mm-hmm. And then it's that innate educator in us <laughs> or that, mm-hmm. you know, like feeling a responsibility that when we learn something and we know that there's a lack of access to that information. Yeah. <clears throat> we have to tell everybody mm-hmm. who we possibly mm-hmm. can, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and then that becomes, you know, like you just said, like that becomes your mission, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's, unfortunately, it's coming, you know, maybe these tragic stories or maybe these just really difficult, challenging stories, but eventually coming to this work and, and then feeling that response. Because I think what you're trying to say is, if maybe if you'd had all of this information much before, mm-hmm. maybe that wouldn't have had to happen, or at least you would have had a much more. Um, I always say it's about having all the information and then making mm-hmm. conscious decisions. Right, you it would have been, been a more informed choices. choice. Informed choice. Yeah, informed I would have. I feel like when you don't even yeah. know what your options are, you're not even making choices. You're just you're making not. like split decisions off of what you you know. Are you picking the the choice between? The lesser evils, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like politics. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, but our bodies are political, you know? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a reoccurring thing that we talk about a lot is, you know, birth is political, motherhood is political, you know, our bodies are absolutely political. And it's, you know, it is, it is about informed choices. And I think the other part that mm-hmm. I heard in your story was relying on doctors, mm-hmm. right, to make decisions. And um, I think this, and that's why I say informed choice, right? It's one thing to say, we have all the information, and we're going to consciously make a choice about what we want to do, for better or worse. But when we're not given all of that information and we're relying on doctors to, mm-hmm. oh, we assume they have all the information and yeah. they're going to tell us what the best decision is, mm-hmm. um, that becomes a problematic dynamic. And I think yeah. so often we do that, right? Yeah, because then there's no um, agency over yourself. There's no self-advocacy. You're just kind of like walking in blindly like, oh, I think the doctor knows best, but then I started thinking about like, well, we're only given what fifteen minutes yeah. of our primary care, and it's like a okay, this is what's going on, and oh, do you feel this pain? Here's some pain meds, and boom. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It's like, well, and then not to mention like, like a machine the, just oh for sure the next one. You know? Not to mention the way the ways that pharmaceutical companies play into all uh-huh. of that, right? Like, oh, here's a pill for all of this, and. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's been larger conversations about doctors who get compensated for oh, yes. prescribing yep. either the pill or any other kind of that exists pharmaceutical. Sure. Just thinking too of like any conversation that we've never had growing up around trusting our intuition or getting mm-hmm. to know our bodies. Yeah. Like, and when we say like, oh, doctors or pharmaceutical companies, I mean, I think it's in whether or not it's a particular doctor, but they come from such a uh, white. Mm-hmm upper class mm-hmm. um, yeah. and male perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're really, and this is the message we've been told our whole lives. Those are the people who know what's up. Yeah. And science, I mean, it, just looking at science, like the development of medical technology or medical advances have always been based on the white male body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not until recently that you know, people are like, let's change that. Yeah. You know, or marginalized groups. Yeah. Right. You know, and even then, because there's such a lack of research, it it's going to take years, mm-hmm. decades before we can 
have some kind of substantial yeah. research to fall back on, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I read somewhere lot. where it's like in medical years, mm-hmm. it takes about like 25 years for a study to finally be like, okay, now we see what the, the trend are. or the patterns yeah. or the, yeah. 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 Um, maybe we can talk then mm-hmm. about, so you came to the work of fertility awareness mm-hmm. and, and I always say it's a wormhole because I too came, came to that work very similarly. And, you can go down the wormhole, mm-hmm. but I, I think that you, you're coming at this work from a very different perspective mm-hmm. um, because it's all very white-centered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all very privilege-centered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, able-bodied, mm-hmm. cisgender, right? Mm-hmm. All of that. Um, so I want maybe you to speak to your, your place in that work. Mm-hmm. And your contribution to that work from a Latinx perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've definitely seen, like, what you said, all of that stuff. And I started thinking, why are there no, you know, people of color that are using this method? And if they are, are they, like, not telling people? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on here? <clears throat> and I did see, you know, like, there are trainings available, but they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. So I'm also like, all right, if I want to be an educator in this, which I'm working on, yeah. um, it's going to take some money. Yeah. So, you know, that that's a whole mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. thing, right? Like yeah. now, now who gets the education? Now who gets to give the education mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to people, mm-hmm. right? The access. Yeah, I've definitely my my whole thing is because I come from a language background, I'm always like where's the language access? Ah. You know, yeah. um for people that are bilingual, yeah. where are they getting this information? Mhm. They're probably not. They're not. You know, um, like there's no taking charge of her fertility. There's no Spanish version. No, of that. no, it not been at translated all. Translated in ten languages or something. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, for sure. and it should be. And I think that speaks to like just this country in general of of, and, and I know this because I've been in this uh, language work for years. We even see it in schools or or like hospital settings, you know, mm-hmm. healthcare settings. It's like they they offer the interpreting services. But nobody opens up and says, you can request these services. It's always a little paper you see hidden, mm. like, on a wall. Mm. Like, call this number if you need translation. Ah. And and it's not something that off- that's being offered up front. Yeah. And growing up, you know, for most of our parents, they came to this country. Uh, for my parents, I'm speaking. Like, they came from Central America. Yeah. Yes, they did learn English, but... There's also been times where for my grandparents, like they would get mail or whatever. And and you end up being the translator, the interpreter at a young age. Mm -hmm. And you're like trying to figure it Mm -hmm. out, trying to help them out. And you you do this role. And so I think we still see that. It hasn't changed. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. like there's there's so many things wrong with that picture that still need to change. Yeah. Because healthcare is really a human right. Yeah, and it creates such a, a, a lack of access. So you were saying when, when children oftentimes have to translate for their parents, things get lost in that translation. And the responsibility of a child to have mm-hmm. to translate these maybe nuanced topics, you know, mm-hmm. like that's who we're depending on, you know. But um, but it, it does speak to a larger, like, lack of access to, mm-hmm. to this kind of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because there's not just, like, the literal language translation there's like the cultural translation that's yes. happening yes. in the moment too and then there's the age you know mm-hmm. access to information as young children and things like that yeah thinking about yeah 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 i think um maybe before we get too much further i think we do need to just talk a little bit about like what is a simplified version of or a definition of fertility awareness for people mm-hmm. who may mm-hmm. not know yeah so fertility awareness is basically um being able to observe your fertility signs which 
most of us have. Um, so they are tracking your uh, basal body temperature, which is like your waking temperature. Mm-hmm. It was really your core temperature. Um, and then um, tracking your cervical fluid or what most people recognize as discharge. Mm. And I don't like using that word for no. a reason because <laughs> there's negative connotations. Yes. Like the vagina is yeah. dirty, all this stuff. Yeah. It's not. There's a purpose to that cervical fluid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has agency. Yes. And then um, the last one is tracking your cervical position. And that one's usually optional, but okay. it's like a third confirming the first two yeah. basically and using those signs you're able to determine when you're fertile and not yeah. and then you can choose like whether you're trying to conceive or not or whatever then you can you can manage your fertility that way and when I came into this work like I mentioned earlier when I realized like I'm not fertile every day yeah we're not there's really a small window when you are and that's about like six days of yeah. your cycle and that just blew my mind mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know like, oh my God, I've been taught wrong this whole time and I'm yeah. 30, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. It's a uh, part of that is a fear tactic, right? Like yeah. if you're pregnant or if you are fer- fertile all the time, then mm-hmm. it scares you into sexual activity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's there's all mm-hmm. kinds of fear tactics for that. Particularly, yeah. like you said, men are actually the ones <laughs> that are fertile all the time and their responsibility is not necessarily put on, put on them, oh, right? Yeah. In the same way that it is for women. So I know that's a little bit of an abrupt ending to uh, the first part of our interview, but we hope that entices you to come back and listen to our next episode, which we will be hoping to release in January. So we hope you enjoyed that and we'll see you next time.